This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And in personal news, and a real victory for me since I get sick a lot in the winter, I have not yet had the flu this year, even though several people close to me have had it really badly. So I'm knocking on wood right here. Yeah, you should be. I, I, I've been lucky too. Maybe we're both now immediately get sick. Uh, I mean, I kind of, I've had you know, a couple colds, but my sister and her kids, both, they all three of them had the super bad flu. Um, we were taking care of her kids the other day because she was knocked out. But uh, our family's been pretty healthy. Well, you know, flu is a bigger risk in the United States, but lately people have been talking a lot more about coronavirus. <laughs> yeah, and so. I mean, just, yeah, I mean, we're, this is a, it's a huge story and uh, there's a lot of things about it that we don't know. But today we have two guests to explain to us what the fuss is about, how viruses work and how writers are writing about viruses. So later in the show, we'll be talking to best-selling author Richard Preston, who's written extensively about the spread of the Ebola virus in his 1994 book, The Hot Zone, and his 2019 book, Crisis in the Red Zone. But first, we're happy to be joined by South China Morning Post reporter Lori Chen. Lori joined the Post in 2017 after completing a master's degree in journalism at City University London. Originally from the UK, she studied English literature at University College London. She's been covering coronavirus for the past several weeks. Lori, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to join you guys. Thanks for joining us. Can you tell us when and how you personally heard about coronavirus? So I first heard about it at sort of the end of December slash beginning of January when um, Wuhan health authorities first announced 27 cases of a mysterious pneumonia um, that affected um, mostly storeholders at a seafood market there. And um, so th I remember at the beginning of January, um, local health authorities made it seem like the outbreak was under control and they said there was no evidence of human to human transmission. And also for about a week in mid-January, there were no sudden jumps in the number of cases until around the 19th of January. But then at that point, the sort of Chinese National Health Commission still said that it was preventable and controllable. But everything changed on the 20th when a leading Chinese SARS expert confirmed that there actually was human-to-human -human transmission. And Xi Jinping also addressed the outbreak very briefly for the first time. And then... A couple of days later, on the 23rd of January, Wuhan was put on lockdown. The virus started spreading more rapidly overseas. Um, foreign countries started evacuating their citizens out of there and issued travel restric restrictions against um, Chinese. And it all just kind of snowballed from there. So your first story about coronavirus was way back January 3rd. And since then, you've written about 20 stories about it. And just recently, just the other day, we're taping this on uh, Sunday, February 9th. We read that the first doctor to warn about coronavirus and who faced criticism from authorities has died from the illness. And at present, there is no cure for it or vaccine developed yet. And, and more than 800 people have died and many more are quarantined even as fast as the virus is spreading. Panic seems to be spreading faster so for listeners who might not know much about coronavirus and how it spread, uh, can you provide some brief background about its sort of scope and the effects that it actually has? Okay, so mostly it seems to cause an illness with um, very pneumonia-like symptoms. So fever, shortness of breath, coughing, um, and in some cases even diarrhea and nausea. And um, from what we can see so far in terms of the data, it's very infectious, more so than SARS. Um, but the mortality rate is around 2.1%, and it mostly affects elderly people with underlying health conditions. And um, the vast majority of infections and deaths so far are still concentrated in Hubei province, where Wuhan, the epicenter, is. 
Now, um, as of Sunday, there are more than 37,000 infected and 813 deaths in mainland China alone. And the death toll has already surpassed that of SARS. So a lot of anger in the mainland over this outbreak has been directed at local health officials and local officials in general who've been accused of covering up the extent of the spread of infections to maintain you know, so-called social stability. And that's why figures like Dr. Li Wenliang, who was one of the, eight, the first eight whistleblowers who warned people they knew about the outbreak in late December, who were you know, later reprimanded by the police and state media, have become such a flashpoint for public anger. You know, people are asking if people had listened to um, people like Dr. Lee in the first place, then would we still have this crisis now? Could it have been prevented further? So can I ask you when you say it's a 2.1 mortality, 2.1 percent mortality rate. Um, and Dr. Uh, Wenliang was he's 34 years old. But it seems to me like other than that. Uh, as with the flu, the people who are most vulnerable are people with underlying health conditions, the elderly, the very young. Are there people also out there who have had coronavirus and recovered from it? And what happens to them? Uh, yeah, so Chinese government actually keeps official statistics on the number of people who've recovered as well. So up until now, there's been about um, just under 3,000 who've recovered from the illness and have um, uh, been released from hospital. Um, but as as for those who've recovered, um, I'm not quite sure what happens to them. But um, yeah, like at the moment, people are just concentrating their resources and energy on treating those who, are, um, who have confirmed cases and also confirming new cases as well. Um, hospitals are very, very overstretched and there are widespread reports of people just not being able to be diagnosed and dying of pneumonia-related illnesses that they didn't know um, were caused by the coronavirus or not because they couldn't uh, get diagnosed in time. I they, see, I see. Do they actually know, is it, this is going to be a dumb question, but my job on this podcast sometimes is to ask stupid questions. Um, is it is it transmitted by like people coughing so that there are particles in the air? Can you pick it up off of a surface? Because I read a story about some British nationals who who apparently got coronavirus after being in a ski resort that had been stayed in by someone from Singapore. Do we know how this transmission from human to human is happening? So at the moment, most experts agree that transmission mostly occurs via droplets. So if, you know, a droplet of someone's coughing or sneezing kind of lands on you and you kind of touch your like eyes, ears or nose or any other sort of mucous membrane, and transmit it and transfer it via that means then yes you can get infected and it can also um, uh, transfer via surfaces as well. Um, I was talking with an expert today who said that um, actually on smooth surfaces it, the virus can linger for a few days. Oh, fantastic! That's great. Oh my gosh. <laughs> So, I mean, from that point of view, of course, we have the image of, you know, so I have um, a propensity for colds and respiratory infections and I'm supposed to wear a face mask on planes and I've always kind of wondered how effective is my face mask and does it do anything? And sometimes I don't wear it. And from what you're saying, actually, it would be helpful, um, like for someone in China to be wearing a face mask on the street. And there are all these stock photos running with or maybe not stock photos running with coronavirus coverage of people wearing face masks. Is that, you know, you go out on the street, is that something you see? Yeah, very, very often in Hong Kong. Actually, people kind of look at you weirdly if you don't wear a face mask. And I think all this kind of is a sort of residue from SARS, where um, th the habit of wearing face masks became really widespread, not just to protect others, but to protect yourself as well. And um, and most experts agree that if you're confirmed to be infected with the coronavirus, then it is best just to wear a mask at all times. But if you're not infected, then actually washing your hands can be just as effective. But it's, you know, it's probably best to wear a mask than not wear a mask. Um, yeah, and also to wear one properly as well so that it covers your nose and not to touch your face or break the seal. Oh, okay. So, so I mean, you know, you in this situation, you're not only a writer, but you're also, of course, vulnerable yourself in a variety of ways as you're talking to people. And how do you protect yourself or behave differently as a reporter as you're working on this story? I've been in Hong Kong this time and, you know, we're only a stone's throw away from the mainland. Um, and yeah, like there is a very kind of widespread panic mindset. Um, yeah, so earlier this week and last week, people were sort of panic buying like toilet paper and, you know, cleaning supplies and queuing around the block for pharmacies to open so they can get their masks. Um, there's a real kind of scarcity mindset and um, that comes with, you know, daily news reports and on a widely circulating misinformation about the coronavirus. And, 
you know, people, you know, th- these panic buying sprees were um, triggered by like online rumors that, you know, man- uh, factories in the mainland weren't able to manufacture enough toilet paper. So, um, so yeah, it's, wow. it's very kind of irrational, but this is a sort of mindset that takes hold during these times when people f- feel very threatened by the mainland, by the fact that our border is still not closed completely. Um, I'm curious about, so if this had been a different kind of story, would you have gone to the mainland? Um, yes. Like we, my colleagues have actually been there. We have sent people to Wuhan because I have some colleagues who are already based on the mainland and um, some of them needed to be quarantined afterwards. Um, but yeah, like most of my colleagues got out before the lockdown happened. So what they were able to kind of gather and receive was very limited. Obviously they're putting themselves at very great risk in traveling there in the first place as well. Um, but yeah. As you wrote, uh, coronavirus has now been confirmed in most Chinese provinces, that makes it a very big story covering a huge geographic area. I mean, we're talking about geography right now in this discussion. You know, how do you or your colleagues at the South China Morning Post cover a story of this scope? How are you coordinating? What's the, been the sort of practical journalistic approach? Um, so basically, this story is absolutely huge. It spans multiple desks and time zones as well. We have reporters in the U.S. bureaus um, covering it from there, covering all the developments that we've missed overnight and um yeah so in in china obviously i kind of look after the sort of like social media aspect and you know trying to contact people from hong kong whereas um we have like some very good reporters covering asia and you know covering the developments from singapore and keeping an eye on japan as well and southeast asia and yeah and we you know have a really really good graphics team that um daily updates a sort of infographic tracker tra- tracker of cases for our global readership um, so yeah, it's basically a huge, huge effort coordinating like dozens and dozens of people. So the story of coronavirus also seems to be every kind of story. It's a medical story and it's a national story and it's an international story. You know, one of your early stories was about, um, you know, the relationship between Taiwan and, and the mainland. Um, it's a human interest story, a business story and a story about culture and your most recent story I spotted is about people of Chinese descent abroad experiencing coronavirus related racism. And I've heard this from a lot of my friends who are, um, you know, East Asian and, you know, in the U S um, post nine 11, I think there's a, a discrimination category. People have talked about, you know, perceived to be Muslim and people experiencing Islamophobia. And now I'm sort of wondering in relation to coronavirus, is there a category people perceived to be Chinese? And the stories that I'm hearing about this are horrific. And I'm probably even missing also sort of separately categories of coronavirus story in that list that I just had. You know, in, in one of your most recent stories, you also wrote about, and this story was heartbreaking. Um, a, a, a teenager with uh, cerebral palsy who who passed away because his relatives, who were also his carers, were put in quarantine. So what consequence of coronavirus has surprised you the most or been the hardest to cover? Um, I think for me personally, um, it's been um, basically dealing with the sheer onslaught of misery um, because no matter where you look on the the um, Chinese internet, you can find stories of people just suffering in the most unimaginable circumstances, like people who don't have ac- access to basic medical supplies, people who can't even get hospital treatment. You know, on social network networks like Weibo, which is kind of like Chinese Twitter, there are you know huge hashtags and trending like super topics um, of people just posting information of their relatives because they're they're desperate to find like a bed in a hospital. Um, you know, they have like their full sort of personal information and, you know, CT scans and everything. And they're just, they're just begging for help. And you hear stories of people whose families who've been devastated by the coronavirus, you know, one day it takes their mother, like a couple of weeks later, it takes their father and then they're infected. Um, so it's basically kind of, you know, these really harrowing stories of personal misery that you're kind of subjected to on a daily basis that I find the hardest aspect to deal with. Um, but yeah, you kind of, you, you know, as a reporter, like you, you have to sort of build up a sort of mental resilience towards these things. And obviously you want to empathize with these people who are suffering from an, ima- an unimaginable humanitarian crisis that's been exacerbated by the government's, you know, inefficient response. But also you want to do justice to the story and, you know, just... Yeah, not let it affect you and your work too much. Well, speaking of that work, we wondered if you could read to us from one of your uh, news stories. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I'm just going to read from my story on sort of global xenophobia um, experienced by people who are members of the Chinese diaspora and other Asian communities as well. So, in just the past week, local media have reported random physical attacks on Chinese or Asians in New York City, Sheffield in England, and Berlin in Germany. In the New York and Sheffield cases, the victims were wearing surgical masks. In Venice, Italy, two Chinese tourists were even spat at on the street. The coronavirus, which originated in the central Chinese city of Wuhan, has killed more than 560 people and infected over 28,000, mostly in mainland China. But because the virus has now spread to more than 20 countries outside China, numerous countries have placed travel bans on those who've been to China. Jade, a 23-year-old Chinese-British writer in London, who, like others interviewed for this article, asked that her surname not be published due to safety concerns, said that while she had not experienced racism herself, her immigrant parents were worried about their safety because of the reported attacks on Chinese people. A man turned away from my dad in disgust when he passed him on the street. I was going to see a film with him, but he's too scared to go out in public where a lot of people are, said Jade. I think media and social media play a big part in stirring up hysteria, both in terms of people fearing the disease and people fearing racism, Jade added. My parents follow a lot of blogs and media by overseas Chinese people in which racial incidents have been going viral, and this makes them fearful for the whole family. Laurie, thank you so much. It's interesting to see the way that, given the, how the government has uh, controlled information about coronavirus, it's interesting to see how information about this and fear about this, and also, of course, these real experiences have made their way through social media. One of the things that I think was most interesting to me as I was reading about this is that bat soup clip from 2016, which went viral and is sort of, I don't know, in American terms, it's fake news and seems to have spread um, a, a certain kind of myth about, right, a certain racist stereotype about, um, you know, there's this sort of notion of disease as a, as a moral consequence, um, of right, you know, soup? Uh, well, of, you know, like, oh, um, th- this set of people behaves in, in this way. Oh, and okay. so they does they deserve what they get, which is, I mean, it just makes me so angry to read about it. Um, right. The sort of notion of like the sort of longstanding, notions of um asian communities as like what do they what do they eat how do they behave they're so strange like there's a sort of exoticism and orientalism coded into the language of how people are talking about this and this bat soup clip which is from 2016 in which you mentioned in your work um i'm curious how did you first spot that and 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 track its path um to um experiences like the ones that you wrote about in the story where people are getting spat at on the street um, basically, so I first saw that clip being reported on by Hong Kong media, and a lot of people weren't sure about where it came from, but a lot of Hong Kong media, sort of local Chinese language media, sort of started picking up on that, and a lot of sort of Hong Kongers and sort of people in Hong Kong um, social media groups sort of started forwarding that meme, and not meme, sorry, the, the video clip, you know, with kind of disparaging comments about mainland Chinese and their eating habits. But then further further on, it kind of emerged that it was from this, you know, this travel show, and it wasn't even filmed in China. It was filmed in Palau. Um, so, yeah, and this travel show kind of attempted to show um, this very kind of freaky, exotic delicacy, you know, and it was completely misrepresented as a sort of, you know, everyday eating habits of the Chinese by, like, people on, um, you know, Western or foreign social media platforms. Um, because we've seen a lot of this where clips like this are just, you know, reduplicated and shared without any context whatsoever. And people will kind of extrapolate or they kind of, they determine from the fact that they've seen this clip that this is, you know, how ordinary Chinese people eat in their day-to-day lives, um, which is obviously untrue and kind of orientalizing. And it's sort of, yeah, it's, you know, look at these like people in their backwards, you know, um, uncivilized eating habits. And the so point it's kind of drawing being, on- just to connect the dots for listeners who might not know that 
the source of this virus is very likely to have been in a bat population? Um, some experts think that the original source was probably a bat, but it kind of it, they a lot of people believe that it jumped to an intermediary animal right, host right. before it jumped to humans. So right. right now, scientists are trying to figure out what that animal was. You know, you can't really get it from eating cooked meat anyway, unless right. that meat is contaminated. So right, it wouldn't be yeah. transferred that way. But that I'm just saying, like the reason that the original meme started has to do with that connection. I would guess. Right. Yeah, probably. And, you know, also touching on sort of latent stereotypes of Chinese people as, you know, uncivilized and dirty in their eating habits. Um, but also it's actually started a really, really um, vital debate on sort of Chinese social media about the need to close these wildlife markets. And people are kind of questioning why are they still running, you know, after SARS was found to have originated, was believed to have originated in one of these like wildlife markets in southern China. You know, why is there still such an appetite for wild meat? And people, even Chinese people themselves, are questioning these sorts of eating habits and thinking, okay, are they kind of backwards, you know, to a certain extent? So, Laurie, this seems like the story not only is of a huge scope, but also potentially long duration. Is that right? How are you preparing to continue covering the story with this intensity, you know, given that experts have been disagreeing on what the forecast is? And you, do you have a forecast for us? Um, basically, obviously, as a journalist, my priority is to continue being fair and balanced in my reporting. And, you know, obviously, everyone hopes that this coronavirus situation will burn itself out quickly. But as a news organization, we kind of need to be ready to cover it for the long haul. And um, some experts believe that the peak of it will come in sort of mid to late February. And um, new cases might the number of new cases might slow down um, when the temperature sort of climbs because virus doesn't survive very well in sunlight and that kind of impedes the spread of it as well in droplets so um but yeah i mean it's very very hard to predict when exactly um the peak will occur and you know we could see many more months of this or it could be even a recurring thing every year some experts have said did you say sunlight yeah oh interesting how does that work um, apparently viruses can't survive very long under direct sunlight. I'm not too sure about the science behind this, but yeah, that's what I've heard. That's fascinating. Um, and what, what, uh, prospects are there for the development of a vaccine? Um, so I think, I believe that several teams of scientists are working together to, um, develop a vaccine for the virus, but, um, it can be, it could be a while before the first human clinical trials could occur. So, um, I think the US NIH is in the process of developing a vaccine and, um, they've said before that, um, human trials could, the first human trials could occur in a matter of weeks. But, um, yeah, I think a, a number of teams are kind of researching this around the globe and in China as well. Laurie, thank you so much for joining us and making time for us in this, in, in all of the work that you must presently have. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. And now we're excited to be joined by Richard Preston. He is the number one New York Times bestselling author of 10 books, including The Hot Zone, The Wild Trees, and The Demon in the Freezer, which have been published in more than 30 languages. Preston is the recipient of the Champion of Prevention Award from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. His new book, Crisis in the Red Zone, came out this summer. Richard, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's great to be with you. So, Richard, we've been talking to Lori Chen from the South China Morning Post about the ongoing coronavirus outbreak that originated in Wuhan, China, and is speeding towards becoming a global pandemic. This is the type of thing you've made a career writing about, starting with your 1994 book, The Hot Zone. And I have to add here that it's a special thrill for me that you're on the show, because I think that The Hot Zone must have been the first science book that I read in EP <laughs> Biology when I was in high school. And I loved that book so much. And, and it really made me excited about reading about medicine, which has been uh, important to my writing. And, and anyway, so I'm thrilled you're here. Um, and The Hot Zone, which National Geographic just recently last year made into a six-part miniseries, dealt with the Ebola virus outbreak and continues with your new book, Crisis in the Red Zone. So I'm really curious to hear about what differences you're seeing between this virus and Ebola. Well, there are some uh, eerie similarities and there are also some real biological differences. Now, the coronavirus that's active in China is not the same family of viruses as Ebola. Ebola is a filovirus, and the coronavirus is a coronavirus. That's the family name. But they do have one thing in they have two things in common that are sort of eerie. One is that they both use the molecule RNA to carry their genetic code. 
RNA happens to mutate rapidly. Uh, unlike DNA, which most organisms use as for their genetic code, RNA doesn't have a checking function. And so when an RNA virus replicates, it makes lots of mistakes. And that means that as the swarm of virus particles enlarges and spreads into more people, you have a very, very, an astronomical number of virus particles replicating in human flesh, in cells. And uh, you get lots and lots of mutants that arise. And over time, these mutants get, um, they change. And the ones that are better able to survive in people, that is to say the ones that are better adapted to the human body, are the ones that proliferate more easily in humans. And the virus changes. Now, Ebola does the same thing, but it doesn't, it has, again, RNA for its code. It mutates and it changes as well. The other thing that uh, is striking about the similarity between these two is the fact that they both apparently naturally reside in the bodies of bats. These are both bat viruses. In the case of the Wuhan virus in China, and Ebola virus, the outbreaks begin when a few particles of the virus somehow or other get from a bat to one single individual, one person on the planet. And then once the virus does what is known as a cross-species jump, it moves out of its natural host into a new host, in this case, a human being. Uh, it begins to amplify itself explosively in human cells. And it sets up branching chains of infection, which can go anywhere on the planet. So wait a minute. Now, <laughs> we kept hearing. I mean, I am I am admittedly not perfectly read on the coronavirus, but we have been reading about it. You know, the you keep hearing that it's come that it's these viruses are coming out of market areas where there are lots of live animals, but the bat, bat connection is not always mentioned. Or am I missing that part? Well, you know, it's interesting. No, it isn't always mentioned. And the reason is that there seems to be what is known as an intermediate host in the case of the Chinese coronavirus. Okay. The virus is getting somehow, apparently, from a species of bat. It is a bat virus, naturally. It's getting from a bat to another kind of animal, perhaps a civet cat or a badger, which is consumed for food. And the, these cats and these badgers are sold for example, at the Wuhan wet market. So uh, you can imagine that it began when one or more animals, alive animals in the market, caught the virus somehow from a bat. Okay. Who knows how? And then from there, uh, most likely there was one single so-called index case, patient zero, one human being who caught the virus from one animal. And then that person who probably worked in the market then transmitted the virus to other people who worked or were in contact with the market. In 2003, 349 people in China died from SARS over a nine-month period. Now, we're recording on Friday the 7th, but yesterday, you know, uh, this coronavirus had already killed over 500 people. And, and by the time this broadcast, it's going to be way more than that. Um, and that's only what's being reported. So why is this outbreak seem to be suddenly becoming more severe than other coronavirus outbreaks like SARS or MERS. Right. Well, I have to caution or preface this by saying that there's an awful lot of mystery about the coronavirus in China. There's a lot that we don't know about it. And some of what I'm saying to you is going to be circumstantial deduction and educated guesses. That's what we love to work with on the podcast. That's right. I mean, that, that's all we've got for all the right. coronavirus because there isn't enough information coming out of China and the outbreak is still new, relatively new. Scientists have not been able to really dig in, for example, to the genetic code of the virus and watch it changing in real time. So we, and we, there is a lot we don't know. Let me, let me first say what we don't know and then I'll try to address the, the question of what do we know or what can we guess. Right. So what we don't know about the Chinese virus is we don't actually know how contagious it is in humans. Now, it is very contagious. Uh, it is probably more contagious than seasonal flu, but far less contagious than smallpox 
or even measles. Measles is wildly contagious. Now, um, the reason why we don't really know how contagious it is is because we don't actually know how many people have been infected by the virus. We think that the virus appears in different people in a range of, um, of you know, severity of disease. So some people may be catching the coronavirus and they don't get very sick, or they might get kind of a bad flu, but they recover just the way you do for most of the time from flu. Um, and maybe, so, you know, what, what is the death rate? What is the case fatality rate of the Chinese virus? Well, it could be as high as 2%, that is 2% of the people who get the virus die of it. Or it could be pretty lower than that. It could be maybe one half of 1% or less. It all depends on actually how many people are sick with the virus. There may be many people who are recovering and barely know they had it. But with this, we just don't know. It's interesting also because, I mean, SARS was at this point, um, you know, over a decade ago, I think 17 years ago, right? And we're seeing this, um, the spread of this, the combination of the Chinese government's control over information, plus the spread of information on social media. I was thinking about what you said about bats. And with Lori Chen, we were discussing, right, there was, um, there's a clip that has been going viral that's mislabeled of a travel host eating, um, biting into a bat. And it's from 2016. It has nothing to do with, uh, um, with this, this instance of coronavirus, but it's sort of being spread as misinformation on social media. How does that play into, uh, the way that we're talking about this? Cause it seems like speculation is almost a necessary part of the way that scientists are figuring out how the virus works. But at the same time that that kind of speculation is going on, this other kind of misinformation is spreading. Yes, and this is typical of outbreaks. And not only is it happening in China, but it happened big time in West Africa when there was a gigantic epidemic of Ebola virus in 2014 and 15. And social media is all over West Africa. People use WhatsApp mostly. And uh, as the virus first emerged in villages along the Makona River in three different countries, Sierra Leone, Liberia and Guinea. They're all those countries come together in a mutual border in one little area. In villages in that area, people began getting sick with Ebola. And Doctors Without Borders moved in and they set up these camps that you probably saw, you know, in media of these white tents and people wearing spacesuit-like garments and then putting people into these camps uh, to isolate them to keep them from transmitting the virus. Well, um, local people just reacted with fury to these camps and fear. Nobody wanted to go into one of these camps. And WhatsApp, social media filled with all kinds of completely inaccurate stories about what this virus was and how it was traveling. And, and there were many people who were in denial about the idea that, that the virus was actually a transmissible disease that it was an infectious disease. They had other explanations for infectious disease. So this is typical of an outbreak. Um, social media catches fire with rumors and untruths, um, and then it takes people a while to kind of adjust to it. The, the other thing that happened in West Africa and is now happening in China is that government authorities establish camps. It's the only way to handle people, um, people who are sick, it's the only way to isolate people. You can't isolate people in a hospital because the hospitals are jammed full of people who are infectious with the disease and the doctors are catching it and dying themselves. So there's nobody around, not enough staff around to take care of all the sick people. The only thing to do is to establish these, you know, what are basically death camps in the case of Ebola. Now, um, you know, think about this for a little bit. Um, and... You know, at the time that the African outbreak was happening, uh, you heard a lot of commentary about, um, you know, oh, these, these nutty Africans, you know, geez, they, they don't even know what this thing is. They're superstitious. They're throwing rocks at the doctors. They're attacking the camps. Those crazy Africans, you know, they don't know what's good for them. Well, think about it in another way. Think about what if it happened in a nice suburban town in the United States, for example, Wellesley, Massachusetts, a good town, nice town. 
Now, what if a bunch of foreigners came into Wellesley and they didn't speak English or they spoke it with a thick, heavy accent and they set up a camp full of tents and they surrounded it with security and then they told people in Wellesley that there was an extreme virus going around and that everybody who had the virus had to go into that camp. And then everybody who went into the camp ended up not coming out alive. <laughs> and meanwhile, they were bringing out body bags, white body bags, and burying people right next to the camp. And some of those body bags were small and obviously contained children. What do you think the people in Wellesley would do? Well, it's a good bet that they would be reaching for their guns and they would be trying to get out of Wellesley any way they could. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, honestly, even just my own visceral reaction to the word camps at this point um, is not good. Um, and I think it's, I don't know, it's interesting to think about all the, the different ways that language over the period of time that we've been writing and thinking about infectious disease, how language has changed. I mean, and also how... Um, yeah, of course. How how racism is encoded in some of this, which you're which you're getting at with um, flipping that scenario. Um, I want to go back to you were talking to uh, the Verge in May of this year, and you said nature is highly reactive. Nature is simple, and it's not just that we're coming into contact with these reservoirs, but the reservoirs are coming into contact with us. And they're changing and they're reacting to the human presence. Like this quote sort of makes me think of climate change as well. And, you know, this almost sounds premeditated. And I wonder about the ways in which this, the spread of this kind of highly infectious disease, this, this kind of virus, is it nature turning the tables on us in some way? Yes, in some sense. I think you can think of it or imagine it as the revenge of nature. Now, I said that nature is simple. Um, normally, the statement you hear about nature is that it's infinitely complicated. And that is true, too. Both are true. But nature, in its relationship with the human species, there is a great and terrible simplicity about it. The simplicity comes from the fact that there are an awful lot of us on the planet. Uh, the human population, in 1900, the human population of the planet was about 1.5 billion. It's now 7 billion. So in a little more than a century, our population has gone up dramatically. And meanwhile, according to UN statistics, um, more than half of the population of the planet now lives in cities, in urban areas, where people are crowded together uh, in these now burgeoning super cities. These are cities with a population of up to 30 to 35 million in some cases, um, really huge cities um, where, you know, take about two-thirds or the entire population of California and put it into one city and then remove medical care, remove sanitation, remove access to good doctors, and remove basic public health. And what you have is a ticking biological time bomb. And so these viruses, which are, you know, they, they come out of nature all the time, uh, cross-species jumps, a virus moving from one host to another, has, that has been around as long as multicellular life has been on the planet. Yeah, um, and I had a question about that, Richard. When you use the term reservoirs, what do you mean by that? Well, it, here's an example of a reservoir. Reservoirs okay. of the virus somewhere, is that what you mean? Yeah, a reservoir, biologists term a reservoir of a virus as being a species of natural host? That's a great question. Uh, it's, it's the species that the virus typically lives in. Okay. Viruses are parasites, and a virus is a little, it's a little tiny particle or nugget of protein that can only make copies of itself when it's inside the cells of a living host. A virus itself is not a cell, and many virologists call viruses life forms rather than living organisms because whether a virus is technically alive or not alive is still a question that remains unanswered. We don't really know. Viruses live in a gray zone somewhere between life and non-life. But they do have the ability to, to make copies of themselves very rapidly. And so a virus will get established in a reservoir like, for example, a species of bat and then um, on occasion, 
the bat will come in contact with some other host, in this case a human being, and the virus just infects the person. And the virus, for probably for odd or even random reasons, is able to replicate inside the cells of the new host. So it does a cross-species jump, it gets into a human being, and then it finds a whole new world to populate. Now, in the case of the human species, um, we're, we're all genetically very much alike. We're much more alike than we are different from one another. And from the point of view of a virus, if a virus could be said to have a point of view, um, the human species... <laughs> <laughs> but they do have a point of view, by the way. Um, it seems it, like it. Yeah, it's 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 not consciousness as we think of it. But viruses are extremely clever in a biological sense, really clever. And virologists who study these viruses uh, see see them doing breathtaking things with their molecules as they as they attack, enter a human cell, and then multiply, sometimes explosively, in the cell. So in any case, from the point of view of a virus, uh, the human species is nothing more or less than a grandiose pile of meat. The Ebola virus was first identified in 1976. Uh, your 1994 book, The Hot Zone, focuses on the history of Ebola and other filoviruses and dramatizes a 1989 incident when a relative of the Ebola virus was discovered in a primate quarantine facility in Reston, Virginia which isn't far from Washington, D.C. And yet, your new book, Crisis in the Red Zone, talks about an Ebola epidemic in 2013, 2014. So does that mean we're never getting away from these viruses? No. Um, we may or may not get away from Ebola. Uh, Ebola is still active a little bit in eastern Congo. Uh, it's slowly being stamped out. Uh, but there will be emergences of Ebola in the future. Uh, as long as there, that reservoir persists of apparently bats, people are going to be coming in contact with the bats one way or another, and the virus is going to continue to make trans-species jumps, cross-species jumps. And it's a part of a uh, kind of an ongoing drama between the human species and the ecosystems of the planet, uh, the virosphere. Uh, the virosphere is uh, something distinct from the biosphere. The virosphere is all those forms of life which are viruses. Uh, and the biosphere is everything else, everything composed of living cells. Now, uh, the virosphere and the biosphere interpenetrate each other like, like clouds in the air, like milk in tea. And uh, nature is absolutely filled with viruses. Every living thing, as far as we know, it gets infected with its own viruses. So, uh, and the biosphere is maybe not as old as the virosphere. Viruses may be representatives of the earliest forms of life on the planet. Maybe so, we're just here hosting them, and they're the ones who are going to write the history books in the end, you know? I don't know. We don't know. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> is, I was going to ask you, like, is, is the so you're talking about Ebola mutating? So, is the Ebola virus that was identified in 1976 the same as the one that you're writing about in 2013, 2014, or is it different? No. Uh, in fact, um, uh, we have to kind of shift our view, our viewpoint a little bit as we think about what a virus really is. See, a virus is it's not just one particle but it's a swarm. It's a swarm of uncounted numbers of, of particles that are all striving to make copies of themselves inside, well, in this case, human beings. And uh, you could think of them as something like an enormous school of fish. All the fish are reproducing themselves. And in some cases, um, a mutant fish will arise that maybe has sharper teeth or can swim faster than the others. And over time, that new fish will replace all the other fish in the swarm, in the school of fish. This is the way viruses operate through time. So a virus can be thought of as a kind of a cloud of particles, a swarm of particles that's ever-changing over time. And is not composed of an individual, but is really a swarm. This is what we're up against with coronavirus in China. 
This is a swarm. It's now reached epic numbers. I mean, I couldn't even begin to guess how many individual particles are, are now in the human species replicating and mutating, changing. Even though the coronavirus outbreak began in China with perhaps just a few thousand or a few hundred particles getting into one human being. Just listening to you talk, I think that one of the most helpful things about the way that you write about viruses are the metaphors that you choose. I mean, I still remember reading The Hot Zone and remembering some of the metaphors from that, which became sort of, you know, thinking about, I mean, viruses, you're talking about the gray zone between life and non-life, right? And viruses seem so abstract because we can't picture them. And one of the things the language you use does is that it gives us all these pictures. You know, the swarm of fish is really great because I can imagine that. So when you're writing about all of this, is there a way that you think about the language to try to make it vivid to people who write, you know, there is so much misinformation going on about this. How, how do you think about metaphor and viruses? Well, <laughs> just in terms of technique and as a writer, um, I think back to when I was in junior high or high school and I was reading the Iliad and the Odyssey and the teacher got up there and they said, now I'm going to describe what a simile is and what a metaphor is. And here is a simile. It's when you say something and it's like the other thing that you're talking about. And this is basically, it's the problem of metaphor or simile. It's, it's finding images for things that are invisible are too small to be seen with the naked eye. Uh, and, uh, you know, the only thing I can say about that as a writer is that um, I fiddle around a lot with words. Um, you know, I like to see words hanging out with each other, and I like to test them out in combinations. And uh, somehow or other, we, you know, we, we come to something. Uh, I think of Ebola virus or any of the viruses as um, non-human antagonists or protagonists, dark protagonists. And uh, as I write nonfiction, I, I conduct intensive focus interviews with all the people I'm writing about. And I go back to them again and again um, in person and then numerous fact-checking conversations on the telephone where I, I run past scientific information past them. Um, you know, scientists are, are tricky to write about because you have to get it right, and that's not easy. So, uh, but in the course of all this, um, I came to think of Ebola virus as a subject to be interviewed, uh, but except that this is a subject whom you can't see and doesn't have speech per se. But at one point when I was working on the, the hot zone, researching it, I got permission from the army to put on a spacesuit and go into the biosafety level four hot zone laboratory, one of them. That was the Ebola lab at Fort Detrick in Maryland. That is not something that I would do. <laughs> well, in retrospect, I wouldn't have done it either um, because I got into trouble in the lab. Oh, God. In, in the hot zone, there is this scene when Colonel Nancy Jacks gets a pinhole in her glove oh, and yeah. her, her sleeve fills up with monkey blood, which is hot with Ebola virus. And she has to make an emergency exit from the hot zone. And she's standing in the chemical shower. And she could feel the monkey blood mushing around inside her suit. And it was oh, not a cut on her hand. So, you know, but so I go into the hot zone to, in effect, do an interview with Ebola virus. I'm, I'm in the hot area in the presence of Ebola and also in the presence of another X virus that the Army hadn't even identified yet, but was considered to be a level four hot agent. And I'm in there, and it turned out that they had given me a loner spacesuit. Uh, no. This can't be good. Okay. Hey, we no found problem. this in a back closet. Give it to the writer. <laughs> yeah, they're all hanging in a wall, and all the scientists have their names on their suits. And you know, your spacesuit is like your parachute if you're a, if you're it's a gotta fit. jumper. You know, you really have to. You know, it's your life. Well, I got this loner, and I'm in, and I'm peering through a microscope, looking at cells that are infected with this X virus. And uh, all of a sudden, I felt my spacesuit like suddenly popped and it lost pressure. It had actually exploded and burst. And I'm groping around with my hands. I can't see anything through my visor. And I suddenly realized that with my gloved hands, I was touching my surgical scrubs inside my spacesuit. Oh my God. And I looked down, the whole suit had blown open. There's a zipper across the chest and it had just 
blown open under pressure. And so I stood up and I turned and I, to one of the scientists and I said, uh, do I have a problem? And the look on his face was indescribable. His eyes went wild and he rushed at me. And um, he just sort of patched me together and he got me all together and he said, now you don't. And I'm thinking like, okay, now I've just had some kind of an exposure. And um, this is, I'm writing about Nancy Jax's exposure. And now what am I going to do? You know, I have options here. I mean, one of the options would be to wet myself and start screaming and demand to be taken out. And maybe another one would be to um, just like, well, since I'm already exposed, what can I do about it and just carry on with my assignment, which is what I chose to do. But then I'm standing in that shower afterwards in this airlock and the chemicals are pouring over my suit. And I'm thinking, okay, if there's something alive in my suit with me, I'm not going to know it until I start throwing up blood. Um, and I had a, a great insight into Colonel Nancy Jacks and into the interior of her mind as I went through this experience. Now, I never wrote about that in the hot zone. I thought it would be inappropriate to use autobiography or to draw attention to myself because really the story is about Nancy Jacks. It's not about me. But it gave me um, what I guess you could call... Um, a real interview with Ebola. Oh my God. Um, thank you for sharing that story. And I, that is the answer to my question about metaphors. Wow. Um, I just think that, I mean, you, you speak and talk about this with such clarity and you did mention before the point of view of a virus. And this is always the thing that I, I love to do on the podcast is sort of, you know, when you're a specialist in this particular thing, how does it change how you think about the language of that? I mean, for what it's worth, the, I think the metaphor that I remember from the hot zone which I read when I, you know, I read it when I was 16, I think. And I remember there was a specific pasta metaphor. And I think everyone in my class, we just went around, we would run each run into each other in the halls at our high school and be like, Oh my God, the pasta. And it just, I don't know, the clarity that that brought to my imagining of the disease, which was so abstract before that, um, the, visceral experience of having your body invaded by something, it can be so uh, diffuse. And that language is just incredible. Thank you for telling us that story. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the 2013-2014 Ebola epidemic for listeners who might not be familiar with it and read to us a little bit from Crisis in the Red Zone. Sure. Well, the, the, the Ebola epidemic in West Africa in 14 and 15 um, started with a one-and-a-half-year-old child, a little kid named Emil. Uh, he lived in a village near the Makona River in Guinea. And he was apparently playing with a sick bat that came from a bat colony that lived in a hollow tree near his village. We don't really know what he did or how he actually got the virus, but it looks like it, it came from a bat to him. Um, he died with black diarrhea in his mother's arms. She died. His older sister, four-year-old sister, died. Their grandmother died. The village midwife who took care of the grandmother and the children died. The mother died. Uh, and then the virus went from there to a local hospital, to another hospital. And over time, it just blew up into a frightening epidemic that got into three major cities in West Africa. Ultimately, about 30,000 people were infected. 11,000 or more died. And there were 11 Ebola cases in the United States. All but one of them survived, but the survivors in the US were treated in very special hot zone, high biocontainment hospital units. And to save one person from Ebola virus cost millions of dollars. So that was the Ebola outbreak of 14 and 15. And one of the focuses of my book is, is to try to get to this very interesting question. Well, actually, how did the virus die out? How was it defeated? And the answer is that it wasn't defeated by modern medicine. It wasn't really defeated by the isolation camps that were put up by Doctors Without Borders and other organizations. Um, it was actually the people themselves who eradicated the virus from their midst. Uh, and they did this with the most traditional, ancient method 
that we have as humans, which is to not touch or go near anybody who seems to be infected. Um, the villages around the Makona River, where it first broke out, began practicing reverse quarantine. That is, they shut themselves off from the outside world so that nobody who was infected could come into the village. Uh, and when people died on the streets, as they did in these cities, nobody would go near the corpse. Nobody would help anybody who was sick. Um, the hospitals were filled with people who were getting little or no care. Uh, and, but, you know, over time, um, the virus just didn't have enough new hosts. Um, so when somebody died of Ebola and nobody would touch them, the virus particles that were in that person's body never had a chance to make that jump to the next human being. The Ebola war wasn't one with modern medicine. It was a medieval war, and it went down as a brutal engagement between ordinary people and a life form that was trying to use the human body as a means of survival through deep time. In order to win this war against an inhuman enemy, people had to make themselves inhuman. They had to suppress their deepest feelings and instincts, tear down the bonds of love and feeling, isolate themselves from or isolate those they loved most. Human beings had to become like monsters in order to save their human selves. In a town in Liberia, a young woman named Fatu Kekula, who was a nursing student, ended up caring for four of her family members at home when there was no room for them in a hospital, her parents, her sister, and a cousin. She didn't have any protective gear, so she created a biohazmat suit out of plastic garbage bags. She tied garbage bags over her feet and legs, put on rubber boots over the bags, and then put more bags over her boots. She put on a raincoat, a surgical mask, and multiple rubber gloves, and she covered her head with pantyhose and a garbage bag. Dressed this way, Fatu Kekula set up IV lines for her family members, giving them saline solution to keep them from becoming dehydrated. Her parents and sisters survived, her cousin died, and she herself remained uninfected. Local medical workers called Fatu Kakula's measures the trash bag method. All you needed were garbage bags, a raincoat, and no small amount of love and courage. Medical workers taught the trash bag method, or variants of it, to people who couldn't get to hospitals. Slowly at first, then more surely, the number of new Ebola cases began to drop. As the number of new cases dropped, the total number of Ebola particles in the swarm dropped at the same time. The particles weren't able to jump to fresh hosts, and the swarm began to shrink rather than grow. Trapped in the host they had killed, unable to reach a new host, vast numbers of particles died along with a ruined host. By the end of 2014, Ebola was fading away. In the Makona Triangle, it was virtually gone. Thank you so much. Um, wow. So just listening to that passage, I'm wondering what you think about how effective the methods being used in China to stop the spread of coronavirus and, and quarantine, how that's working. And, you know, for example, I know that at Princeton, there are students who've been asked to self-quarantine. What do you think about all of that? Well, I think that it can have limited effects. But the virus has penetrated too many human bodies now in China for there to be really effective quarantine. For example, nobody really knows who has the virus and who doesn't. Uh, the tests are slow and there aren't enough tests available for people. So epidemiologists have totally lost track of the chains of infection. We don't know where the virus is going and we don't know who has it. That is in China. And so, you know, you're basically going to have to quarantine everybody. Everybody has to be in a camp um, and it's not going to work. It just simply won't work in the same in the same way. Um, the effort to initially the whole city of Wuhan, Wuhan was quarantined by the Chinese government. Nobody in Wuhan was able to leave the city and nobody could go into the city. Well, that always fails in a major epidemic. What happens, of course, is that the minute your city gets put under quarantine, you and 
millions of people like you make every effort to leave that city any way you possibly can. <laughs> right. So when you quarantine a city, you guarantee an explosion of human beings coming out of that city, going anywhere they can. Um, so that failed. Now, um, but there is that larger, I think the larger comment, so to speak, about the human condition uh, and about what, if we don't have any other treatment for an infectious disease, the one thing that does work is isolation. Uh, and when the hospitals are full, and when to go to a hospital is to guarantee that you're gonna get infected because there's so many infected people in the hospital. Um, what you do, what people normally naturally do is they just stay at home. They lock themselves in their homes. And if a family member or a loved one gets sick, they care for their loved one. In West Africa, um, often enough, when one individual in a family came down with symptoms of Ebola, um, another family member typically a woman, was detailed to give that person care. And the other members of the family wouldn't come near the caregiver or the patient. And so the, and often enough, the caregivers sacrificed their lives caring for a person they loved. So, um, you know, we, we get back to a situation that is, in effect, medieval. Now, if the virus should come to the United States or to anywhere, um, I rather think that it's going to be something like a bad flu. Uh, I don't. We're not talking about something that's going to cause a breakdown of society or the end of the world. I really don't see that coming at all. But uh, I see the possibility of a new and perhaps entrenched human disease that we can't get rid of now. Now that it's gotten into us except through vaccination. So uh, what do you do in a situation like that? Well, I think you do self-quarantine. Um, if you can stay at home, if you've got enough to live on, that's what you do when the plague is going around. That's what they did in London in 1665 during the Great London Plague. Um, people stay at home and the, cities of, the streets of the city become empty and quiet um, in a time of plague, just as the streets of Wuhan now are quiet. Uh, I don't know whether or not the streets of New York will go quiet um, if coronavirus comes around, uh, but it's something that I think we all kind of have to keep in mind, which is the continuity of human history and uh, the, the, basic, the basic thing, which is the human condition. And despite all of the science that we have, all of the medicine that we have, in the face of an emerging virus, something new coming out of nature, for which we have no vaccine and no treatment, we are reduced to simply um, a collection of human bodies uh, with no more protection for us than doctors in the 19th century had for diseases like tuberculosis. I cannot believe that that is where we're going to end this podcast. <laughs> I think that's where we're going no, to have we're, to end it. We're, we're well, going to yeah. end it like Fatu Kukola with no small amount of love and courage. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, there is something I could add to that because I'm, I'm myself, I'm not a pessimist. All right. You sound pessimistic. I think in the face of disease, I think we all, you know, to one extent or another have experienced serious disease or we've seen it in people we love. Um, there is uh, a need in a time of disease for no small amount of courage and love. And I'm a great believer in people, and I believe that we have more than enough of that in ourselves to deal with any virus. The other thing that we have is new technology. There have been some really stunning advances in recent years on drugs and vaccines that can defeat these new viruses. And there are now uh, drugs that are made from antibodies, which are proteins, little proteins that can kill a virus, that seem to be extraordinarily effective against new viruses. Uh, and what we actually need right now is um, a, a kind of a surge research and manufacturing base, which could be done so that we could get 
drugs to defeat a coronavirus or any other kind of virus in a matter of months. And we might yet have it. Um, by the end of the year, there may be uh, experimental vaccines or experimental drugs that can work against the coronavirus. So we're not without our tools, we're not without our resources, and we're not without courage and love. Richard, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Richard. And we would encourage our listeners to go out and buy all of Richard's books, but most especially his newest, Crisis in the Red Zone. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is by Travis Berkman. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type in fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We love hearing your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast, where we post links to our show notes, which will include some of the readings we talked about today and by our guests. Happy reading, happy writing, and get your flu shot. 